Navigating the Datascape with Warner Chavez and special guests. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Datascape podcast. Today, I am joined by the amazing and one of the brightest minds in the data industry, Jen Stirrup. How are you, Jen? Yes, thank you. Thank you for the lovely introduction. It's really great to be here. Thank you for having me today. Absolutely. And Jen, for the listeners that might not be familiar with you, tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, your career, and what kind of things are keeping you busy these days. So I've been in the industry for 25 years this year, which is just incredible. Mm -hmm. I've learned so much and I've learned a lot from my customers, from people, and also successes and failures where things haven't quite turned out as people had planned or hoped. So I think, my, well, my background originally was artificial intelligence. So I was fascinated by the idea that we could use computers as a way of understanding the human mind, but also helping us. And when I look at the low-code, no-code solutions in particular, I'm so jealous because <laughs> I learned to code the hard way. <laughs> and now nice. you've got all these wonderful solutions nowadays. So that is very interesting that you started in the AI space, a space that now is actually very hot around the industry, but this was actually the beginning of your career. So what kind of stuff were you doing back then? Originally, I was looking at natural language processing and email. Okay. Now, 25 years ago, it maybe sounds silly now, but 25 years ago, email was a big thing. <laughs> <laughs> and companies were struggling to handle their email in any good way um, they didn't want to keep hiring more and more email and I don't know how you feel about email sometimes but I certainly feel overwhelmed by it mm -hmm. and companies were just getting overwhelmed with email so what's for small consultancy we built bespoke artificial intelligence solutions to try and understand the email coming in and take an action based on that particular email message. So it was really good. I enjoyed it. I learned a lot in a very high case consulting firm. I was there for five years and long enough to build a good network. I think you need to stick at something for a period of time mm -hmm. so you can really master it. I sometimes see people doing AI for a year and proclaiming themselves an expert. And Actually, I find that I'm always learning because the field is changing so much, so fast, so quickly. And and now you focus more, is it more on the business intelligence space? Yeah, I sort of fell into business intelligence. When I was building AI algorithms, I was accustomed to pushing around a lot of data. Mm -hmm. And it's not a lot of data now, <laughs> but mm -hmm. at the time, it certainly was a, a lot of data then. And in those days, I was using SQL Server version 6.5 and SQL Server version 7. And I was using very early editions of Oracle before Oracle had a graphical user interface. Mm -hmm. So I had to use everything by code and files. And that's how you manage the database. So I found AI became less popular around the year 2000. I think that was for two reasons. One was Google renamed it as Search Technologies. So it became it got marketed a bit differently and search is a big part mm -hmm. of artificial intelligence. And I think secondly, it was around the Y2K time mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. For those of you who are not yet 40 years old, uh, the <laughs> year 2000 problem was really big at the time. It was really massive, actually. And we kept predicting the world would fall apart. So AI fell to one side. The company still wanted to do something meaningful with their data. So I ended up in business intelligence that way. Okay, that's that's very interesting. I mean, same thing, right? Like over the years, you've probably seen the evolution of the business intelligence problems and challenges that you solve for your customers, right? Is there anything in particular that has been like a thorn on your side over the years that you're still battling today? Like have the problems evolved or changed? Are, Are they still largely the same? What's your opinion? I still think the largest problems, if you like, are regarding people and processes. I can see great changes in the technology, Mm -hmm. but I don't always see that as an industry that we have really nailed or solved the problems regarding giving people what they really, really want. So I think two things are missing. I think one is data engineering. Mm -hmm. I think companies are only starting to understand the importance of the data engineer. I think, secondly, people's expectations are often quite wild regarding their data. They see these great demos by some of the vendors, mm-hmm. but they don't see what's going on behind the scenes. So they don't always come to understand that the data visualization aspect is only ever going to be as good as the technical and data apparatus that sits under it. And I think um, people sometimes see what they want to see. They want to see an easy dashboard Mm -hmm. created in two clicks, that kind of thing. And actually, that's not how it works. You have to have good data engineering, good data models. And this is a message people don't want to hear. But actually, in my 25 years in the industry, all I see is that becoming increasingly important all the time. And it's a timeless skill, actually. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. What's your opinion on this? I've heard this a few times in the last couple of years where some people say, you know, like data modeling in the database is dead and you should just use, you know, build your data model in Power BI, build it in Tableau and just accelerate your time uh, to solution by doing that and skip the data modeling in the database because now we have hardware and way more compute power where you can just crunch analytical queries even if your data model is transactional by nature. So what is your your take on on that opinion that every now and then you see floating around the internet? Yeah, I tend to think that's a good way to get started. So to prototype and start Mm -hmm. off doing the data model in Power BI or Tableau, I think that's a good approach to get started and, and also to test a big thing that I think is missing is people's understanding and ability to execute good testing. Okay. And the doing things in the data model in Power BI or Tableau allow you to have a good go at testing the results at the front end. And you tend to do that in tandem with the business users. So user acceptance testing is absolutely crucial. Get the business on board right away. Mm-hmm. and get the users involved right away. They're the ones who really understand and can interpret the data for you best. Once you've done that, I think it comes down to the volumes of data and the complexity where you start to put that data model. I tend to see Power BI specifically starting to fail um, in terms of the performance. It doesn't always perform very quickly as people expect, 
because there's too much data in there, the relationships are not set up, it's been asked to do too much. So when users start to complain about performance, that's the point at which I say, you need to move that to the data model and use a database for that. I've also seen examples recently where people are moving away from data visualization technology that they've okay. been using for some time. And then they have to redo everything in the data yeah, model. That's true. So you can I lock yourself that. into the front end tool, right? If you do it that way. Absolutely, 100%. So I've recently moved um, one organization from Power BI to using Looker, which is Google's okay. product. Yeah. And that one reason that that took longer than I think people expected was because of all the intelligence that was in Power BI that needed to be re-implemented back into Looker. Um, so what I could do there was with that organization was help them to put the data in the data model and then start to move everything over to Looker at that point. Mm -hmm. We had a better basis then. And the way that I have left it with the organization is the data model in the database that's where the data model lives. Mm -hmm. If they want to change again to a different technology, it will be much easier to do and much less friction next time. Absolutely. And and now that you mentioned that, I, th I think that's really interesting um, that they moved from Power BI to, to Looker. Now, obviously, without having to go into super specifics about the client in particular, um, what, what's your take on these, like migrating from one visualization tool to the other? Because I mean, there's many reasons why somebody might want to migrate a tool from one, one to the other, but there's always the cost of doing so, like you just mentioned, right? So there has to be a return of investment. So if I'm already established, and it doesn't even have to be specifically Power BI to Looker, it could be the other way around. It could be Tableau to Power BI, Power BI to Tableau. In your opinion, is there is there a use case where there's a strong return of investment into switching visualization tools or... Is it mostly interchangeable between most of them? Is is there like a real good value proposition into spending time to switch these tools? I think it comes down to, first of all, the cloud. Which cloud are you using? Mm -hmm. So I think, say, for example, you have a lot of data in Google and you're transferring that across to Power BI. And that, I think, can it can, it can cause an extra jump for the data. Mm -hmm. Okay. because you're having to switch from one cloud to another. The reality is many organizations are multi-cloud. Yeah. So I um, I wouldn't call myself a Looker expert, mm -hmm. uh, but I really think the ease of use of it was really important. Now, Power BI and Tableau are both very easy to use as well. So in some respects, they do come across as quite interchangeable. I think the difficulty for Power BI, I think, is the DAX language. Mm -hmm. I think people get to a ceiling with it. Okay. And if you're a business user, you start to find it difficult to use things like the contexts, the real context, photo context. They okay. get the results they don't understand I and see. then start to realize, actually, this isn't what I want. I want something that is more SQL-like, something that's more easy in a language that I can understand. And I think that's the second issue to consider when thinking about changing data visualization tools what is the skill set in the organization if you're asking people to learn a new skill then you're invested in that particular tool because sometimes that doesn't really work out because if people find the complexities of the data uh, language say power bi tableau Luku, or whatever it happens to be they're going to find it difficult to use and the user adoption will decrease 
Yeah. What about in the data engineering space? How do you go about structuring? Let's say if somebody just says, "Hey, Jen, I want to, I want to, I want to pay you, and you want uh, you spend some time creating or bootstrapping my data engineering practice." How, how do you go about doing that? Yes, yeah, so the way I tend to work personally is I would tend to lead the team of data engineers. Uh, one role I've had uh, in in the past little while is actually looking after a few different data engineering teams across the world, and I think. Uh, one thing that I brought to the table was looking at it from an agile perspective. Okay. A lot of companies say that they're agile. They're actually not. Um, but what I try to do in organizations is to bring a more agile approach. So we start to look at what pipelines we need to build. We build out user stories. We build uh, story points. We have, uh, well, I use Jira. I tend to use Jira. Mm-hmm. Uh, and our ClickUp It's another good tool to try and build out those data pipelines and measure how well they're going. So I think the skill set for that is testing again. I think the data engineer first and foremost has to have good testing skills and that can be unit testing, but I'd also like them to be able to articulate well the business context behind okay. it. There's no point in the cloud particularly moving across 400 columns if you only need a certain number of those. And I think some data engineers would just perhaps lump across the whole 400 using select star, mm-hmm. whereas that wouldn't be a good practice. I'd, with cloud costs in mind, when you're moving data around, I want people to be mindful of what they're taking across and able to test that properly. It's much easier to test a smaller number of columns than say four or 500. So for me, I think data engineering is about an attitude. Mm-hmm. People should have about being diligent with data. In terms of the technology, and um, I've used or led teams that use a few different technologies. Okay. So Snow Snowpipe, for example, is a Snowflake one. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually really like that tool. I, I like okay. um, it hooks in with Python. So that means if people have got a Python background, they can start to start to use Snowpipe. It's one that um, I'm seeing more and more of Apache Airflow. You can implement it using uh, Google or AWS. Yeah. And it sits in there. And what I like about that is it uses a graph approach in order to move data around. So I like that. One technology I love is a Fivetran. Oh, yeah. Fivetran is very that. popular. I yeah. don't mean to plug these tools. Yeah. I don't mean to advertise these tools. They're not paying <laughs> okay. me. To, yeah. to no, no. Them. It's fair recommendations. Absolutely. Appreciate it. Yeah. It's just in my experience, I found... The supports with each of those being great. I can see success really quickly. And in an agile environment, people expect almost turnkey solutions mm-hmm. to say this data needs to move here and here, and we need to move it around to look like this. And um, it works very well with a wide range of data sources. So these are the ones I tend to see, uh, and to see successful data engineering um, enterprises, teams using those. And and to the point of the 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 skills of what we should expect from a data engineer, this is something that sometimes is debatable too, right? Like, what exactly is a data base a data engineer, right? In your opinion, is if you know should should we have separate people to be doing data analysis, other people doing data modeling? The data engineer should just focus on uh, quote unquote like the plumbing, uh, maybe the coding of the transformations. Like, w- what do you think? is your description of the role or what you recommend that your customers build into the role for for their staff 
My recommendation is that the data engineer works closely with other teams and has a good understanding of the other perspectives. Mm-hmm. So the best data engineers that I've worked with are also able to turn their hands to do some data modeling, some even mm-hmm. data scientists, uh, data science work. I've also seen data scientists who make fantastic data engineers because they just understand about the principles of testing, moving data around to get it in the shape that it needs to be, and making that process repeatable and automated. So some fantastic data scientists who are really great at data engineering, even though it's not really uh, what they should be doing. Mm. I think the data engineer I see to someone who's moving that data around 50%, but the other 50% is testing, documentation, and underpinning those skills, I expect collaboration. I don't want someone just to lump data around from here to there. I think- Provide a little more value than just that, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, people can do that, but I think it's good to have a natural curiosity about the data when you start to move data around and understand it's correct. I'll give you an example. I did some work for a, a hospital Okay. for the NHS in the UK. And in the morning, I noticed that there was five years of data missing for one of the hospitals. And I was really panicking, actually, because I thought there's five years worth of hospital patient data. I can't find mm-hmm. it. And I was really like, oh, gosh, where is that? And my heart just dropped. Couldn't find it. So I got to lunchtime and I thought I have to go and tell someone because something terrible must have happened to this data. So I, I met one of the nurses as I was champing along the corridor uh, with my heart in my toes. <laughs> and and I said, we're missing some data. And, you know, I, I'm just letting you know. And she said, oh, what is it? And I said, it's for this hospital for five years. And she said, oh, don't worry about that. That hospital closed for five years. And we transferred all the patients to this other hospital. So the data will appear over in the solar hospital. And then that's why it suddenly appears again five years later. I have never been so relieved before in my mm-hmm. entire life. <laughs> but the point being that as a pure data engineer, I might not have even thought about the context mm-hmm. of this. You're in a vacuum then. Data. I just would have said, this data goes here, it needs to be lumped to there, and not cared enough perhaps to even check that it was all there. Whereas I think just knowing the context really helped. And I cannot tell you how relieved I was when I saw mm-hmm. it was a genuine, <laughs> a genuine It was expected concept. then. Yeah. Absolutely. What about DBAs asking me about this? Is, you know, the DBA, I've heard the DBA job is the dead end now. Everything's getting automated or put into the cloud. And I, I, I want to know if I, you know, what do you think is the easiest path for a DBA to move into these more like, I don't know, I don't want to say modern, but, you know, they're, they're more popular roles nowadays, right? Like data engineer or they hear data analyst or um, data science and all this stuff. Do you, do you have recommendations for people that, are, you know, they kind of got stuck into the DBA role and they're trying to move over to this more of a, the analytics business intelligence side of the house? Yeah, the first thing I'd recommend is they automate as much as possible everything as a DBA. Automate and operationalize. And what I would then suggest they do is they really try to understand the data that they've been looking after so well. The first step I would do 
would be to create a data dictionary. Go through the databases you're looking after and work out how you can describe the data in there. Because I would be willing to bet money that the organisation doesn't have a data dictionary or a business glossary. And that would be a great start because it will be the first step towards understanding the data and it will have an outcome that people can use. Mm-hmm. Well, then when they've done that, that will allow them to transition more easily into either business intelligence as a first step. And that, I think, would be a good move. Just do some reports. You'll have a data dictionary. Look at the reports that people want. You know, well, a good place to start with that, I think, is look at what Excel dumps you're asked to do from the data. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that would tell you what reports what people are looking for. Yeah. Once you have, let's say, a, a practice that is somewhat established, you know, you have your data engineers, they are developing their testing, things are going well. What is the maturity model that you use for your customers? Like, where do they go next? Do you go implementing, you know, like to your, to your point, like, you know, a mature data catalog? Should they start to do data quality testing? Uh, should they move into more of the newer stuff, like the machine learning, et cetera? What do you usually see as that journey of a client uh, through the, the maturity of their data uh, solutions? I, I reckon if they're not doing data quality, then they're not in a, de- a mature data organization. So they might think the reports are correct, mm-hmm. but they, they may not be. So part of doing the data dictionary, I think, would be a data quality assessment to understand how much of our data is missing, how much of it is incomplete, how much of it is in a wrong format. Do you find that clients out. really underestimate this, by the way? Oh, they, 100%. They, they, right? they, they always think that it's, it's pristine and everything is just like ready to go. And then it's like, oh, no, it's like definitely not. That's true. I had one customer that had 300 different ways of expressing male and female. And that was before they even <laughs> get into non-binary, yeah. um, transgender, all of these different permutations yeah. and, and colors that we have when we think about gender. So when I showed them this report that said you are representing male and female in 300 different ways, they were absolutely aghast. They mm-hmm. couldn't believe what they were doing. I think it's particularly the case when a company buys another company. Mm-hmm. They're often buying the data of the company that they're buying. And that, that can also be really bad quality. So you can end up with one company buying another company. Both companies have got bad data and you're trying to join the data together of two really terrible oh, yeah. data estates. So that adds in another complexity. I see that with mergers and acquisitions, actually. Yeah, happening. that makes sense. Are there proper tools out there? What do you usually recommend? Is there a, I, I've used a few open source ones. There's a really popular open source library called Great Expectations. I mean, you've used that before in the past. Um, is there anything in particular that's like your go-to stack for these type of solutions? Yeah, I like Atacama. I quite okay. like the look of that. No, Sometimes it's a just, commercial provider, right? Yeah. Yes, it is. I'm not telling people to go and buy licenses. I don't yeah, not yeah. selling it. <laughs> oh no, it's okay. Yeah. I think it's quite nice. Um, so there's that. Also, um, as one company I was working with, um, ASG Software. I think they were taken over by Rocket Software. I must look that up. The company name. But I thought they had fantastic data lineage and data quality solution. When I saw it for the first time. It was just like 
my jaw just dropped because they had everything in there. They had the queries making up each of those columns. They had little charts and graphs to tell you the data quality. And it was just such, it was like um, a bit like Visio, but okay. the, everything behind it was so much more in depth. So I really liked that tool. But I think to sometimes, yeah, again, it's a commercial solution. But again, great expectations is another one. I think, um, you know, just start with something. What I sometimes do at a very high level is just start off by writing some SQL. You know, I'm looking for nulls. I'm looking for things that don't fit a particular format. And just some very basic metrics around the data. Mm-hmm. I put that in a presentation and then I give it traffic lights. This is red, amber, green. Uh, I don't like using traffic lights, but it lands better with executives. Yeah, I know. So I'm sticking with the traffic <laughs> lights from now. Yeah. Um, so I tend to do that. And then I can see your data is all red, and this is why. But here is a roadmap to get yourself out of it. We can tuck the data quality work in alongside each sprint. So I worked with one organization that makes data quality was actually part of every single project that nice. they did internally. Yeah, it was really visionary, actually. Everybody complained. We don't have to, we don't <laughs> want to do data quality. We're doing this other thing. Why are we doing this? And they didn't see it. But over time, uh, they started to feel the benefits because organizations can work together vertically, but not horizontally. So they don't always see how well they are working together mm-hmm. or how sometimes they're actually not working well together they're really badly impacting one another have you worked with uh, improving a company's data literacy so how much their non-techie staff actually understands the data that they're presented with right because it's it's very nice once we solve these quality issues and even if you make a really nice viz somebody might just have trouble interpreting the actual numbers in front of them Right. Have you worked in, in that angle as well? Yes, I'd probably say every project I do to an extent is looking at data fluency. Now, I actually don't like the term data literacy, Okay, I have to say. No, no fair and enough. I'll tell you why. Yeah, I'll yeah. tell you why. Uh, everybody uses it and uh, I have an issue with it. <laughs> so controversial. Yeah, yeah go <laughs> for it. With data literacy, it sort of assumes that people are data illiterate. And I don't like that. It feels diminishing. Okay. In a way, because sometimes if you say, oh, we need to improve people's data literacy, it gets people's backs up. Mm, I see, I see. It doesn't put them in a good frame of mind mm-hmm. to adopt a new technology or use the reports because they, all they hear is, I'm illiterate. That's yeah, what yeah, they I hear. See what you mean. Even if that's not what you meant. And everyone uses data literacy. So what I do enjoy, I think, is I prefer the term data fluency. Okay. Because I see data fluency is more like building a language or understanding a language. So if you look at the way a child learns a language or you learn a, a new second language, mm-hmm. you know the words, you don't necessarily know how to put them together, and you don't understand the context. As you become more fluent in the language, you know more words, but you know how to put them together better, and you also start to understand the context better. So if something is a swear word, for example, and I see the same with data, I like to think of it more as working with a grammar where you've got certain rules that work under some circumstances, but not others. And you've got the building blocks, which is the data, and you're trying to build up that picture 
So I tend to look at it that way. Um, data fluency is, uh, I think, a nicer, more forgiving way of looking I at it. I like it. that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take it from you, but I'll, I'll give you credit for <laughs> Thank it. Thank you. That's all right. I wrote a blog post about it a while ago, yeah. and lots of people get really upset with me. I couldn't understand why. Really? Okay. And then I thought, yeah, they put data literacy in the link. But it makes sense because files. when you when you explain it, it is true that it's not like it's not like a switch on and off button, right? It's a continuum, right? So it makes sense yes. about talking about like fluent. Are you more fluent, less fluent, right? As opposed to not literate or yes, literate, like with the other term, right? So that, that exactly. makes a lot of sense that you came, um, came up with that. Um, do you find easier or harder? Do you see more or less resistance as you go up the executive chain in a company? So are the execs more open to being educated? Are they less open because they think they know more about it? Are the more like, you know, day-to-day -day managing people more open? Are they more close to this, you know, improving their data fluency? What has been your experience? I tend to see in most organizations as a visionary, and that visionary will bring me in usually okay. to try and help to lift the organization as a whole uh, in terms of the data. And that can be technically, and it can also be culturally in terms okay. of cultural adoption. And it also could be more about process and improving people's skills on a very local level. So I tend to see a big disconnect in the boards often where people have got differing views of the data and people don't always understand at an executive level how important the data is okay. or they have just at this point given up because the data fluency in the organisation isn't high and they don't want to be the one that tackles the problem. They want to be... The, they want to have left and have the next CTO, mm. CIO deal with the problem. Mm -hmm. So I think that's important to recognize that actually you have to have agreement at the highest level and people okay. have to see a really, really good example of being data literate. So sometimes I've been in meetings and the, the board member will say, I want to see the data for that. Have you got the data? No, you need to go and get it. And over the course of time, they see it less because people are starting to bring the data with them. So sometimes okay. a, yeah, yeah. That's people, cool. people need a push sometimes to become data-driven. So they'll be driven until they are data-driven. So there's a bit of that happening. But often I see that um, data organizations have been through a situation where they have maybe been through a crisis and that has been resolved by an executive sponsor who's managed to solve it somehow by improving or sorting out the data. So I think with lots of organizations, they talk about being data-driven, but two things need to be in place for that to start to happen. One is a crisis, and the other is the right executive sponsor in place to push that through. Because if there's not one, you won't be successful. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I know you do a lot of work also for you know charitable, nonprofit stuff. How, what are some of the use cases that you've seen in that space where it might not be so much about, you know, the competitive advantage, um, but, but, you know, the data is, is kind of like what you make of it. Like, are there any, any interesting use cases that you've seen? Yes, I worked with one charity in the UK who uh, support women okay. and women who are disadvantaged or in trouble in some way. So it can be a charity that supports women who are going through domestic violence. Okay. Uh, they are potentially 
having financial difficulties. Sometimes they get both of those mm -hmm. uh, problems in their lives. Uh, and there's a myriad of problems that they could have. So one charity I worked with, what we did was we um, had a look at ways we could use the data to fundraise or to capture better where they were losing money. Okay. And what we found was the when the charity receives a referral from the police, then the charity can make a request for a donation from the police okay. in order to help financially support the support that they've given uh, to that particular woman. Now, maybe that woman's been caught shoplifting, as an example. Mm -hmm. And the reason she's shoplifting is because she's in financial difficulty. She's got a coercive boyfriend who is pushing her to go and uh, commit crime in some way. She may have mental health problems, perhaps mm. as a result of those two other problems being in place. So what the charity couldn't do very well was report back to the police to say how many referrals that they'd had. So it was a matter of doing things like data quality and mm -hmm. um, encouraging data fluency and being able to give them a really effective report to say this is how much how many referrals you've had from the police in the last month, in the last three months, in the last six okay. months. That could help to identify trends. Yeah, it could also, they could go and invoice the police and say, you owe us a certain amount of money per woman to support the charitable work that you've asked us to do. And actually over time, uh, that amount of money was enough to produce a better waiting room for okay. women and children who were accessing the services. So as you can imagine, when people are accessing the services of a charity like that, um, it's nice to feel comfortable. You want a toy box mm -hmm. for, for the children to play with. Yeah. Because uh, often you have to bring family members. So they were able to buy uh, and improve the reception area. And it may not sound much, but for the women who are accessing the service, it's just a more relaxing environment, especially if they are distressed in some way. If there's children there, mm -hmm. they've got toys to play with and books That's and nice, things. yeah. There's a quality yes. of life improvement um, for yeah. people using the service, right? That's great. That's yes. a great uh, it's a great story. And, and I'm sure, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's kind of, it's uplifting as well to see how, you know, we can still use technology for all these is uh, strong, uh, positive uh, outcomes, right? Um, future predictions um where do you see the the industry going right every every few years the it industry and obviously the data subset of the it industry has to come up with some new thing to keep the wheels rolling right um a few years ago it was all about though everything's about big data hadoop uh map reduce whatever um then everything uh was all about you know cloud came in right some people were even doing Hadoop on-prem a while, many years ago. I don't think anybody does much of that anymore. Most of it is cloud now. And over the last couple of years, there's been a big push over machine learning. You know, if you, if you, were, if you go by the amount of articles in the internet or presentations, you would think that everybody is doing machine learning. Um, but, you know, for the listeners, just, just so you know, it's not the case. Um, but is that the direction where the industry is going? Do 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 you see uh, other other directions besides just the you know 
uh, popularization of machine learning and AI. Is there other stuff there that's still untapped for the vast amounts of data that we're collecting every day? Like, what do you think we'll see coming up in the next five years or so? I think we see more with data governance. Okay. I think companies are struggling to understand their um, responsibilities around okay. data. So I think you see more in the space of data governance. Uh, so that involves also data quality, data dictionaries, and mm -hmm. all these back, back to basics in some ways. Because I think, although it's not jazzy, <laughs> um, it's actually a really important thing. And companies are starting to try artificial intelligence. They're starting to try machine learning and realizing they cannot trust their results. Mm -hmm. and they can't trust their results because the data quality is poor and they're having to go through all of that pain to understand something that they maybe should have done in the first place, which is get to real grips with their data. So I think that's one thing. I'm hearing more and more about the metaverse as well, okay. augmented reality and virtual reality and how we get data from those. The way I see that working is um, tagging of videos will become more important. Mm -hmm. And we'll get better at recognizing, you know, things that like what's happening um, in a video. So I think there'll be more of that as time goes on. Facial recognition will get better. One thing that worries me about the future significantly, actually, is the presence of deep flakes. Deep fakes. Oh, yes, that's true. That really bothers me quite a lot. Uh, I really see an explosion in deep, deep fakes and how easy they are to create. I think 98% uh, of deep fake videos are of women. Yeah. And they are non-consensual images. So that's a huge attack on on women. It is it is a big uh, problem, eh? And it's it's mm -hmm. uh the what used to be a very complicated problem now it's 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 very simple, right? Like to your point is the amount of video that we collect from people, right? Where you can train um the actual ai models and then the compute power that takes to generate one is obviously like way less now than it was a few years ago right and and it, it has gotten so good at it too is that it, it's it's an actual like real problem to sometimes identify if one of them is a a deep fake or not right yeah I, and that's a really complicated problem it's a big problem it's even going to be a big problem for law enforcement as well going forward i agree and it seems that the technology is out there but the ethics are still catching up so in the uk they're making it um against the law to produce yeah, uh, deep fakes that are non-consensual how they're going to track it and how they're going to enforce it i'm not mm -hmm. sure in the UK particularly, they're not good at tracking um, crimes against women generally, and this is going to be another one that they're probably quite bad at. So I'm a bit worried that we are sleepwalking mm -hmm. into something that could be used as a political weapon and a oh, weapon yeah. against individuals. You can see on Reddit, for example, there are a stack overflow. There's lots there about deep fakes and they're all solving the technical problems of deep fakes. Oh, you need to do this setting or that mm. setting, that kind of thing. But nobody's stopping in the thread to say, hang on, should you really be making that deep fake video? Yeah, what girl? are you about to do? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and this is a problem that. that comes with technology often, yes. right? It's like, you know, it doesn't exist in a vacuum. It exists in, in the context of what we are using it for, right? 
So absolutely. There's and other good uses for of course of AI and ML and whatnot and, and GPUs. But uh yeah, this one is definitely one that's troublesome. So I'm sorry to end in such a disappointing and dystopian the dystopian no so we'll we'll end up with a more with a more positive a more positive one and it is for the people that are you know i get this question a lot too um kids that are in school and they want to enter um the it industry and particularly they are interested in the data space what do you tell what are your recommendations for that really younger crowd you know the 18 19 year olds that are considering going to college or university and they are genuinely interested in the data industry yeah i would recommend to them to jump on to something like code academy or okay. something like that where you can do hour of code and and just start to learn to do little bits mm -hmm. and see what interests you most Some people will love the front end. Some people will enjoy the coding. Um, I know that when I've been doing mentoring, I sometimes help out in mentoring programs. Some of the things that uh, younger people can do in their teams, it just absolutely blows me away. Mm -hmm. you, know, you know, if then they start to get really coding and because I think they're just so good at thinking outside the box and solving things in really interesting ways and coming up with new ideas. And I love watching that enthusiasm. So I think my advice would be try different things. Don't just try one thing and think, right, that's it, I'm going to do Python, and that's mm. going to be that. Try different things and see see what you find. So I know at home uh, my son didn't seem that interested in computing science but he picked okay. up python recently and now it's almost like i can't get him off the laptop he's a mom mm -hmm. coding leave me alone you've been begging me to do this for years mm -hmm. <laughs> now you now you got it yeah careful what you wish for <laughs> yeah i know and now he's not talking to me because he's punched over yeah. mom i did this i did that but it's great i think to really see that enthusiasm i think it bites people eventually yeah absolutely absolutely appreciate it all right well That's all the time we have for today, folks. Thank you again, Jen, for joining me. And thanks for everybody that listened to our conversation. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for having me. Bye. Navigating the Datascape.